Welcome to the Koreathon Recycle, a Tar Volan Talks podcast. Here, Diana, Fenya, and Varianda reread and discuss the Wheel of Time. This episode is not the beginning. There are no beginnings or endings to the Wheel of Time, but it is a beginning, specifically the beginning of the Eye of the World. We hope you enjoy our breakdown of Ravens, the prologue, and chapters one through five. Here's your spoiler warning. This reread will contain spoilers for the book series and the TV show, although we will try to keep the spoilers to a minimum and or light. So, hey, everybody, this is Varianda. Uh, I'm currently, and hopefully for a good long while, (laughs) I don't know why I said currently, but I am of the great Aja on Tarvalin.net. And this is actually my very first reread of the wheel of time i have only read the book series once immediately became obsessed with it um joined tarvalon.net hopped into jordan con and uh definitely dove in face first to this entire book series i think i'm officially obsessed i originally read the series in 2021 so i am a baby book reader i have not been with this series for any significant length of time whatsoever. And I was introduced to it because one of my best friends from college, two of my best friends from college, they had been begging my husband and I to read read this series for, oh my gosh, a really long time. And then COVID hit and we got back into reading pretty heavily and they, they finally persuaded us to sit down and read the series. And we started reading it in March of 2021 and we finished it in September. It was, it was a sprint. We sprinted through these books. So I'm really looking forward to this reread so I can actually pay attention and digest more of it this time. I think that's faster than I read uh, the book series the first time. I think I took nine months. Oh, wait, that's still pretty quick. So uh, Fenya here, I am currently an accepted um, at Tarvalon.net. And I actually, technically, this is the third time I've read the first book, uh, because back when we were in college, Diana convinced me to read the books, and I got, like, uh, halfway through book three before I gave it up and stopped reading. Um, And then uh, when the show was coming out, she convinced me to give it another shot because she was like, I really want to talk to someone about these books. And I said, okay, fine. Um, (laughs) And I read them and enjoyed them, got through them all this time. Um, And uh, yeah, and here I I am doing a podcast, a Wheel of Time podcast. Super glad Diana forced you into this again. (laughs) (laughs) Super glad. Which brings us to Diana. (laughs) hello yes i'm diana um and i am so glad that fenya read these books and enjoyed them like i knew she would (laughs) um but yes i am diana um i am also currently an accepted um on tarvalon.net this is my first or my, my third read through all the way through of the series so since a memory of light came out Um, But I have no idea how many times I've read Eye of the World, Uh, specifically the first like five chapters of Eye of the World, because I used to get to chapter six and give up. Uh, We'll get there when we get to chapter six. Um, I first started The Wheel of Time when I was 
15. Um, uh, my, uh, she wasn't my girlfriend yet. She was my best friend. Uh, and then we started dating and then we broke up, but she introduced me to the series. Um, and I would have done anything for her. So I read the series for her. Um, all of that was out at that point, which I think was through winter's heart, um, powered through that series in for me powered through which means it took two years because I am not a very fast reader unlike Very and Fenya um and then every time a new book came out after that I would reread the series up through then through the current book um sometimes I would skip chapters or books and I would use the tarvalon.net library in order to read their chapter summaries in order to do so um so that was my introduction to tarvalon.net as well um but yeah I am really excited to be the senior member of this podcast uh in terms of book reread and like with the the series uh that's very new and different for me i'm used to you know when chatting with doll and thad they are like the book experts so i'm i'm hoping to make them proud and hold my own in terms of stuff but it's been a while my last reread i finished in 2020 so it's been about three years since I last read the series so there's a lot of stuff I don't remember although it it, I I personally feel um glad to have a senior member um because otherwise I might get lost (laughs) I'm not gonna lie um, yeah I'm I'm with you Barry (laughs) yeah reading the series right now for this for this podcast feels like coming home which is great um and I've already run into things I had forgotten like the warders color shifting cloaks I had completely forgotten about that. And I was like, this used to be one of my favorite things. How could I have forgotten? So I think that's going to happen a lot for me. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. All right. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and let's dive in. And we're diving into Ravens. And for uh, people who aren't familiar with this particular chapter, so Ravens was an additional prologue that was added to the eye of the world when the eye of the world was split into two different books. The first one, part one was called from the two rivers and part two was called to the blight. And this is when they took, took eye of the world and split it into two different books to try to market it to YA readers. And so if you've never even heard of this chapter, you wouldn't be the first person. I actually am pretty sure that my first read or my first two reads of of this book um, did not involve me reading Ravens because it was not familiar at all. I was borrowing a copy of the Eye of the World, uh, Diana's copy of Eye of the World. And I don't think that it has Ravens. (laughs) All right. So Ravens. So the, the whole premise around Ravens is it's set about 10 years before chapter one. Um, of Eye of the World. And so we're following Egwene around there and we hear more about uh, a little bit, a little smidgen about Nynaeve. Like it's, um, it, it's called out a little bit more explicitly here about how old Nynaeve is in relation to um, the rest of the Edmondsfield Five. Edmondsfields five. Um, she's six years older than they are. So for this chapter, Nynaeve would be 17 to Egwene's 9. 15, I think. It says, there is a quote in the book, um, says, 
Elisa, Elisa, one of Egwene's sisters, was 18, but her waist-length hair was still tied with a blue cur- with a blue cur- kerchief. Not that she was thinking about getting married. Most girls waited at least a few years, but she was a year older than Nynaeve. Either Jordan's math is off or something something is wrong there. Something's wrong. I, I think that the problem with the math is that when, as far as I understand it, when Ravens was introduced and Eye of the World was split into two books, they also aged down all of the main characters um, from the original printing of Eye of the World. So... So everyone's age is now different in this version of the books than in the original version of the books, which then makes the math very complicated. Do you you know if that's something that um, was consistent in uh, other printings of uh, later later printings or later editions of Eye of the World uh, that are not separated out? Or did they go back to the original text in the original ages? And it's just this one or two books that have really wonky. I would need to compare. So I have the show. I don't know why I'm showing the cover. This is a uh, auditory medium only. Um, I have the show version of The Eye of the World, which includes Ravens. Um, I have the first half of the split copy of Eye of the World, which includes Ravens. And I have a very... I don't know how old printing of Eye of the World, which doesn't. I would need to go back and compare all of them to see what they did um, in the show version of the books, because this is probably the most recent version of Eye of the World. Um, but I'm genuinely not sure. I'd be curious to find out. So as as Egwene is kind of, she's carrying water around. Um, she And dang it, if she does not want to be the best water carrier that has ever been in Edmondsfield in the two rivers. <laughs> she also doesn't do a great job because she keeps like skipping off to go watch the boys. You know who she reminds me of, especially in this particular chapter um, is that very type a teenager or girl who um, thrives on the external appreciation and validation from adults um she got straight a's in school ivy league college and she's very rory gilmore in this chapter i think i would agree with that i've not actually seen gilmore girls but the description (laughs) like that type a kind of personality yes that that is very much going in this chapter one line that i thought was a little funny um is from matt how uh he says, I'll rescue an Aes Sedai and she'll reward me. And I'm like, oh, Matt, you're adorable. <laughs> you're absolutely <laughs> adorable when you're at that age. <laughs> it's nice to have a minute of cute Matt because for the next couple of books, he's going to be very frustrating for me. So I'm enjoying this moment while I can. It's I'm sure we're. I'm, this is going to be a really interesting dynamic between the three of us because I don't mind Matt in the first two books. It's in like the middle books that I'm just infuriated with him. Um, and then Fenya, you don't like him in the first two books. And Diana, you are a Matt stand from here till eternity. 
I so. am a Matt stan until Brandon Sanderson starts writing Matt. And then that is Matt fan fiction from here on out. <laughs> See, we all have our little chunk <laughs> of Matt fandom would, or dislike. <laughs> I would agree with Love that it. statement. Um, I stopped reading the books because of Matt. So, wow. I mean, I, all do, right. I do like him in the later books, like he redeems himself. I think he's a great character overall. He's really great. Uh, but yeah, he um, frustrated me in the beginning. So at one point in time, the boys are uh, recalled from their fun and they go to where Tam and Bran Alvere. And if I remember correctly, I think Sen Bowie is there as well. Um, tells and Tam essentially tells the story of the Age of Legends and of the dragon and the War of the Shadow and of Murdral and Trollocs and Forsaken. And the way that he is telling the story, knowing what we know now about Tam's past, it's the way that he tells the story is factual as opposed to how the folks of Edmonds field talk about the dragon and the breaking of the world. Cause to them, all of it's bad. The Aes Sedai are bad. The, the dragon's bad. Like it's all just bad. Whereas the way that Tan tells the story, it's almost in historical context. It's, more of him giving a history lesson, it feels more like, than um, telling a fantastical story to a group of kids. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and we learned this pretty early on in the books that, that Tam has experience outside of Emmonsfield. Um, but I think that this is a great way of Jordan uh, kind of showing that to the reader before he actually tells us that. Um, because you can feel the depth of his experience. Like he's, he's had experience with war. He, he knows that things aren't just black and white. Um, and that comes out in this more nuanced uh, storytelling. So Diana, I know you have thoughts on Ravens being printed before the prologue. I do. Mostly because I just feel like in every other well, that's actually not true. I was going to say in every other part of The Wheel of Time, it's all in chronological order. But that's not true because we have two books that take place over the course of a week and they tell the same story over two books. Um, so, but other than that, the rest of the series is essentially in chronological order. And so it feels very weird to me, even despite the way that Ravens ends, to go from Baby Emmonsfield 5 to the prologue 3,000 years in the past to Teenage Emmonsfield 5. Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. And every time I recommend a new person read The Eye of the World, if I know that their copy has Ravens, I recommend that they read the prologue, then Ravens, then chapter one. Um, even though it has this little bit at the end that does kind of like have it tight nicely into the prologue it feels also a little bit kitschy in a way that the rest of wheel of time does not 
Um, that's part of why I love the series is I feel like it's a very mature, like very kind of like upwritten fantasy series. Um, and this, I mean, they were trying to market it for young adults, but this chapter in particular feels very uh, young. So I just, I don't know. I, I feel like it's not a great intro to the series. Like what captured me about the eye of the world is the prologue. I read the prologue and I was like, my mind was blown. I still remember that first time I read it. Um, so I don't know. I, I Ravens is, is a great chapter. It's very cute to see our little Emmonsfield five as like babies, but I, I don't like it as like the beginning. I like that. It gives context for the events that happen in the prologue. Um, I agree that it feels kind of disjointed, but I don't know. Like I I don't I don't hate it as the entry point as much as I think you do. Um hate is a strong word. I just find it um Well, okay. I, not the best. Jarring. It was not just, how I would have done you it. You dislike it? Yeah. I, I I think I think ultimately I I'm neutral on it and the placement of it. I definitely can understand your argument like i think you make some really good points there yeah i i i like it but it's superfluous i don't think it's necessary uh if if somebody if somebody were to ask me do i really need a version or a copy of eye of the world with ravens in it i'd be like no you're fine (laughs) i definitely don't feel like i missed out my first read through by reading a copy that didn't have ravens like i don't reading reading it now i'm not like man i wish desperately with all of my heart that i had read this the first time no yeah so as we go into prologue i have to ask you guys this because we did we did a tarval and talks podcast on this did you guys go into the prologue with billy zane like at the forefront of your mind and Like, That's literally the only thing I have in my notes about the prologue is I couldn't get Billy Zane and Max Ryan out of my head. Try as I might. I tried so yeah. hard to picture the Prime actors. I was like, no, no, Amazon Prime lose there and Amazon Prime and Sean Mael, please. And I couldn't do anything else except the Winter Dragon actors. It was awful. No, it was great. I love Winter Dragon. I think it's a lot of fun. It's, te- I mean, it's terrible, but I love it. So I was happy imagining Billy Zane and Max Ryan. Oh Although my I god! Do think that the prime actors are are better, to be honest. The prologue, though, is um, if if you've if you've never read the books before, and Diana, you said it you said it earlier that the prologue is what hooked you. Um, and I got the sense that it hooked you because of the, what the F factor, like what, what just happened and who are these guys and why, why is she dead? And why did that happen? And now there's a mountain. Yeah. It was like the, the scale of like, you get dropped right in the middle of the action and actually like almost at the end of the action and just like the scale of like what is happening? Like what, what has happened to this man? Like, who is he talking to? Why is all of his family dead? Like, Oh my God, he killed them. Um, and like, 
whoa, this dude seems super powerful and he just created a mountain out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, it was it was simultaneously the what the Fness and also the just the scale. Like I could tell from the jump that the scale of the series was going to be epic in a way at 15 that no other fantasy series I had read up to that point would be. So at one point in the in the prologue, the betrayer of hope um, in in the prologue, he reveals his original name, Alan Morin Tedronai. Um, he goes into this monologue of once you stood first among the servants, once you wore the ring of Tomerlin and sat in the high seat, once you summoned the nine rods of dominion, um, you humbled me at the hall of servants. You defeated me at the gates of Parandisen. List out all of these things. And even the first time when I read through the prologue, I was like, what? I'm going to assume I'm going to learn what all of these things mean. Um, and one thing I was really disappointed in is that y- you don't, you never learn about, you can, you can guess, but you never really learn. So one thing I did this time around was I did my research and I was like, this is what these things are. So the servants quote, uh, uh, unquote, and the hall of servants Back in the Age of, Le- of Legends, these were the Aes Sedai. And the Hall of Servants it was essentially the hall in the tower before there was a tower. Because there was, back in the Age of Legends, there wasn't a white tower. Um, the Ring of Tamerlan and the High Seat. The ring was worn by the leader of the Aes Sedai during the Age of Legends. Um, supposedly, it was named after the first person to ever learn how to channel or t- tap into the source. Um no one knows if it was a man or a woman who did this. And the assumption or the guess here is that the present title of Amerlin seat or the Amerlin is based off of that, which you can kind of, that most people can kind of guess, right? Uh, the nine rods of dominion were symbols of regional governors during the age of legends. Um, of which we know none of those, none of the forsaken were regional uh, regional governors. I don't think that that's necessarily important, but there you go. Um, and the guess here is that the oath rod used by the Aes Sedai may have been one of the actual nine rods, among other rods that are used later on in the book series. Um, and then Perendison, um was the greatest city of the Age of, of Legends, and that is where the Hall of Servants was located. So hopefully that adds a little bit of context. If anybody else was wondering about what all that crap was, like I was, now you know. It's very cool that Luz Theron was an Amarlin seat at one point. Yeah, I, I didn't get catch that the first time either. I mean, the first time I read this, obviously I had no idea what an Amarlin seat was. So basically all of that uh, that you just read out was nonsense words to me uh, the first time. Um, right. Yeah. And so having the context of the series and the lore coming back to it, um, I find it really interesting to uh, catch some of those things, even though like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know what the nine rods of dominion were or, or parent Um, And I 
didn't do my research because <laughs> that was too much effort. <laughs> There's so much in this last passage that is just like quintessential what keeps me coming back to Wheel of Time. Um, I like, I get goosebumps for good foreshadowing. Like nothing gets me going like good foreshadowing. Um, and the first mention of travel, traveling, the fact that that is in this prologue, like my hair was on end. I was like, oh my God, look, there it is. <laughs> like it's right there. It's the first in the prologue of the first book. Oh my God. Um, the fact that Luz Theron is the one who, like, I obviously everyone knows he created Dragon Mount. Like, hello, it's in the name. Uh, but the fact that, like, he is the reason that Tarvalon exists, something I had completely forgotten. Another thing that made my hair stand on end. Like, this prologue is so good. Such a great intro to the, sh- to the series. Like, I know I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Like, it's it's incredible with the the amount of stuff that Robert Jordan packs into this prologue um, that either does get touched on again or doesn't and like leaves little mysteries and little hints about what the Age of Legends was like uh, for readers to really like hook them and then eventually peel back the layers more and more as the series goes on. Like, I love this prologue. Um, I'm, I'm really, really drawn to stories um, that have almost a mythology about them and give me anything with an origin story. I, I, I am madly in love with any, any origin stories. And that's really what this prologue feels like. It's a mythological origin. And this didn't necessarily um, hook me or this feeling didn't necessarily occur to me when I first read the prologue, um, but it's something that I appreciate now, um, is that it's so clear that Jordan has a very firm idea of what has happened in his world. And that's something that I really love, is that depth of world building, where even if the reader doesn't learn every single aspect about the world. And we learn a lot about it because we, this is a 14 book series, right? And there's, there's all sorts of, of information that's peppered in, but it's, it's very clear that Jordan had this huge expansive idea, but all of the details were firm. It wasn't just some like nebulous, you know, kind of hazy uh, background painting. Um, and like, I, I love that kind of in-depth world building, which is very much on display in the prologue. Especially when it's so well thought, thought out and it's not, you read some fantasy series where they'll reveal some detail and you're like, well, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Like where did, why, where does that fit into the grand scheme of things? And it really doesn't at all. So I do agree with you yeah, there. I, yeah, I, I like it when it feels like the world has been thought about. And you definitely get that sense that the world has been thought about. All right. So here, past the prologue, is that space right before the chapter. Um, and there are many places where this happens throughout the entire series, but we get snippets of writings from 
um, books, poems, entire series. But at the beginning of Eye of the World, there's two bits of text that are included. One from a text called The Breaking of, of the World, another from a text called The Cycle of the Dragon. In both of these, the author is unknown. But what I want to call out is when these texts were written. So both of these were written during the fourth age. And at the beginning of chapter one, we learn that it is in the middle or they are in the third age. Super important because in my mind, as hopefully others will agree, I'm not that insane, is that these texts are not necessarily written about Luz Theron, Telamon. They're written about the dragon of the Third Age. The in the second passage um, from the cycle of the dragon, um, you know, through the initial, through your first read, your 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 initial read through, you're reading through these these passages, and it just kind of tells you you're you're reading through like through these and it's they sound like you don't even know what they sound like at this point in time uh, you know it talks about let the promised one be born of the mountain according to the prophecies as he was in ages past and will be in ages to come and you're reading through this and you're like okay this sounds all great and stuff and it sounds very prophetic um and very important and but there's you don't at this point in time during your initial read, you don't understand what any of these things mean. And I don't know about you guys, but whenever I read through this again, I was like, well, this is just this is just one giant spoiler at this point. That's all what that what that passage is, is just one giant spoiler. Would you agree? Yes, but I love that. <laughs> yes. Because foreshadowing and spoilers are two sides of the same coin. And like I think that. I would categorize these as foreshadowing by some. And again, I couldn't tell you how many times I've, re I've read Eye of the World. Until you mentioned that these were from the Fourth Age, Barry, I did not catch that they were from the Fourth Age. So, like, I would consider this to be foreshadowing more than spoilers because, like, it takes a real close read and also kind of the context of the whole series to sort of get the full oomph of these other than that they sound cool and epic and like let's go agreed I, agreed i agree with yeah I, I agree with you entirely diana um i did notice on this read that it was there is that fourth age third age uh difference not something i picked up on the first time i read it um and i think that because if you don't know what's going to happen you don't understand how these are telling you what's going to happen I would definitely call it foreshadowing and not spoilers because it doesn't like it doesn't, it doesn't give away the plot in a way that uh, makes it unenjoyable. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's mm -hmm. hinting at things. And so then that takes us to chapter one officially. And I, I, I don't know about you guys, um, but with this being my first reread, reading those fir that that first paragraph, it hit me in the feels. 
it it makes me cry every time um like every time i read that first paragraph in every book it makes me cry like the especially the like but it was a, a beginning like just like you said just like right in the fields every time and like when they ended season one episode one of the show with rosamund pike saying those that paragraph i started crying as well because like <laughs> This is so essential and quintessential Wheel of Time is to like start with a wind and then like go dive into literally dive into the action in the world because you follow that wind and like, oh, I love it every time. I'm going to cry every time. I'm crying right now. <laughs> love it. All right. So. Coming into chapter one, Tam and Rand um, are walking down the road towards Ed, towards Ed, Edmonds Field. Um, Tam's got his apple brandy in the cart. They've got Bella pulling the cart. And I think this is where these first few chapters, um, condensing it all a little bit, because the first five chapters, first four chapters, we'll, we'll say, um, are really more about describing the land, the people, the culture, the traditions, the um, all about Beltine and, win and winter night. It's more about, it's, it's really the world building chapters, right? That describe um, more about the people of Edmondsfield. But there is a little bit I of mean, setup there. We, we have to know... Uh, more about Emmons Field in order for us to sympathize with Rand when he has to leave it, right? So that's what these chapters are doing. They're they're setting up all of that. Like this is what his life is now, so that it can be contrasted with what his life becomes. <laughs> uh, at this point in time, at least in his life, he, I got the sense that he wanted, he never wanted to leave. He'd be happy in the Two Rivers. He wanted to keep things simple. Change is scary. Leaving the two rivers is scary. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel like he's a homebody, right? He likes the two rivers. He likes he likes his life. He doesn't necessarily want to go off and have adventures the way that um, some of his friends do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rand and Egwene, especially as characters, throughout the entire series, but in the beginning um, of the book especially, are so interesting because they're like complete opposites um, and their narratives are yet going to be so parallel throughout the rest of the story that like Rand is like, and Robert Jordan has like explicitly stated this, that the point of writing Rand was the hero who refuses the hero's call because before that it had like basically constantly been like the hero who takes up the hero's call and like does the noble thing and blah, blah, blah. And like, what if the hero just wanted to stay at home and drink ale and read a book? <laughs> <laughs> but had to go out into the world because he had no choice is sort of like the initial exploration of Rand's character. Um, and I love, I think that's so interesting. Whereas Egwene um, is the hero who wants, she's like ready. She's, she wants to answer the call. She wants to see the world. She wants to like go out and do the things and be the best and yada, yada. Um, and like, even when, leaving Emmons Field for her only means like being a wisdom in another village. She's all for that. Whereas Rand is like, that sounds awful. Why would you ever do that? Um, and it's so interesting to like see their dynamic um, and like 
how these two just do not see the world in the same way and like are not in alignment in terms of like what they think matters um i i really really like this part and i I might like rand through this reread more than i've ever liked rand in the past um because i'm normally like forget rand even in the beginning i'm like i cannot stand him he's so whiny he's so annoying and i actually like found myself really liking rand in these chapters um still riding hard for my baby boy matt but like not not quite as much on the rand sucks train as i normally am Diana, do you think the TV show had anything to do with your blossoming appreciation of Rand this time around? I mean, my shameless crush on Yosha definitely helps. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, I was always constantly picturing him in his fuzzy sweater as I was reading these chapters, despite the fact that it was like his cloak. I was like, you mean his fuzzy sweater. I hear his cloak, but I'm picturing blue fuzzy sweater. So then on that note then, okay, so whenever I'm kind of meshing chapters one through four together um, and we can, we, we, we can pull some pieces out of there. One piece I want to pull out on this note then is did anybody else struggle with the uh, description of land? Yeah. Yeah. I was I was not a fan. So so in in the book where where Land is described as, uh, he's got graying hair, he's older, he's much more weathered face. Um, I just inserted Daniel Henney instead. I'm gonna roll with that. I mean, throughout I, the rest I, of the series, I much preferred. <laughs> I much prefer the visual of Daniel Henney than the the bookland, but um, one of the things that I most vividly remember about reading um, the books for the first time was because at that point, like they had already cast Daniel Henney. Um, well, we're not talking about the first, the actual first time I read the book. The first time I read the, the series as a whole, like they had already cast Daniel Henney, and and I remember Diana talking to me about how like he's actually not supposed to be hot and so that has always like I've never forgotten that in the books he's not supposed to be hot so it didn't it didn't like strike me because I was like oh yes Mm -hmm. I remember this because Diana talked about it (laughs) oh my gosh I think the description that I struggle with the most is actually Rosamund Pike to Book Moiraine. Um, and as much as I love and adore Rosamund Pike and think she is the perfect Moiraine, my actual visualization headcanon for Moiraine is itty bitty curly hair porcelain doll Moiraine from just as described in the books. Um, mm-hmm. and she's described as not even yes. coming up to Rand's chest. Like yes. she little. <laughs> she's a little, little girl lady. Um, and like she has such a presence though. Um, that like, I love that she's like tiny, but fierce and like, but like calmly fierce, like a, like a raging river, um, in this little like tiny package. I love that about my rain. Um, and I'm also in order to 
help myself read fast enough to do this podcast because I am a very slow reader. Um, I'm also listening to the audiobooks and in particular the Rosamund Pike audiobooks. And her voice for Moiraine is not her voice for Moiraine in the show. It matches the book's description much more. It's much more musical. It's a little bit lighter. Um, it's fascinating. I strongly encourage people, even though I love uh, Kate Redding and Michael... Kramer. Kramer. Kramer, thank you. I, I do Kramer. like their versions of Wheel of Time. I'm really loving the Rosamund Pike versions. She does really interesting voices for my reign. Her Tom voice is phenomenal. She gives him this, like, I can't quite pin what part of England accent it is, but it's not like traditional London English accent. Um, and like, she really does the like gleam in voice where it sounds like he's filling up a large room. She's, she's incredible. Um, I mean, Rosamund Pike can do anything, but her versions of the books are really good. And her Moiraine in particular is uh, fascinating to me. That is interesting. I haven't listened to Rosamund Pike's version of the audiobooks yet. So it's weird. It's weird that her audiobook voice is Moraine is not the same as what it is in the show. Does that cause any kind of like dissonance in your head? Yes, because her narration voice is very similar to her Moiraine voice in the show. So there will be times where she'll sound like Moiraine talking about Moiraine, and then she'll speak as book Moiraine, and then she'll narrate as show more it's it's my brain is kind of like all over the place but I also love it because I've always had a hard time kind of imagining what like a musical quality to a voice would sound like how like Moiraine's voice I think is described as like chimes sometimes and just to be able to hear her do that is very cool I'm like um, I thought it was really interesting um going back to the description of Moraine um briefly uh, none of the boys recognize the Aes Sedai ring on her finger. I don't, I don't know if it, people in the village do, because that's not, we don't really get that. But um, yeah, I was, I was surprised by that because I think I had maybe gotten the impression over the course of the series that it was a much more recognizable um, symbol, even though, I mean, they are kind of in the sticks, so... Yes. And that's what, and that's what Robert Jordan does throughout these first, in reading through these chapters this time around actually got a little tedious for me because it felt like he was beating a dead horse and making damn sure that we all understood that these people don't know anything about anything outside of the two rivers. They are very, closed off from the from the rest of the world both geographically and culturally um socially it's not no one is encouraged to leave the two rivers and if you do it's you're seen as a weirdo um and so he spends a seemingly inordinate amount of time making damn sure that we understand that that they don't know anything about anything outside of this area of the world. So I do agree with you, Fenya, that it is interesting that they don't recognize it, but after going through this time, it's not wholly unexpected. Um, no, it's definitely not unexpected. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you there, but I liked it because um, I think it is 
another way of showing that they don't that that they are so isolated um and yeah the the amount of detail that jordan went into to make sure that we understood that that didn't bother me particularly um so i i did actually like that um that was another way that that you don't recognize when you're reading it the first time you don't recognize that that's showing that they are so isolated but in hindsight you know on on that second read um or third read or whatever uh, you you actually you're like oh okay this is the fact that they don't is a thing because they probably should yes agreed agreed i think it's also interesting that Moiraine doesn't hide that she's an Isodai from them. She doesn't mention it, but she has got to know that the two rivers has some pretty backwards views about Isodai. Um, and, but it's interesting that she's like, but they're not going to recognize that I'm one anyway. So it doesn't yes. matter. <laughs> um, yes. She also doesn't give a fake name. And I had totally i i did remember this but i didn't remember it when the show first came out um because i had always thought that she gave the two rivers a fake name because we see her do that basically forever going forward um and when she like rolls up in episode one of the show and she's like and, and land is like this is moiraine i was like y'all are just out <laughs> and then i was like, <laughs> back and and read like the first chapters of the books and i was like oh no that's accurate that's book accurate okay <laughs> they were also just out about um mm-hmm. Like, not hiding who they are. Like, Lan does not take his color-shifting cloak off. Like, he... They're so clearly an Aes Sedai and a warder to anybody who would recognize them like Tom, which is why Tom reacts the way that he does when they show up all of a sudden. Yes. Um, yes. But she, they're just... She's like, this backwards village isn't going to know who I am. So, like, what does it matter? Yes. And I am so glad you brought up Tom. Because I definitely wanted to touch on that as well, because this this is not in the show, and this is this is one of those um, written parts in books where you know you know something's going on, you know, like hey, okay, what's going on between these two people, and it doesn't feel like um, a romantic interest in this interaction it definitely feels more like uh i know you and i don't trust you and i don't like you but i'm not going to ruin whatever it is that you're doing in this town by announcing who you are to the town folk because tom very well could have done that he could he very well could have said uh you know thank you moraine said i there's that definitely that aspect i will say that if i had only seen the show and had not read the books this to me would read as tom as a dark friend the way that tom acts around moiraine in these chapters and then going forward a little bit more i'm he acts so suspiciously i'm like this dude is bad news (laughs) i think this dude is a dark friend um is he show only people who knows i I did not read him like that. But now that you mentioned that, Diana, I can totally see it. Because he's like almost almost overly performative. 
in what in what he does to the point where it's like he's obviously trying to hide something yeah Yeah. oh he like he is like putting on a show and being larger than life and then he sees moiraine and he's immediately just like clams up like completely snapshot and it's just like nope uh i'm out of here i'm a regular person don't mind me blah 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 bye um and like knowing what we know as like rereaders it's definitely tom's like fear of Aes Sedai and like discomfort around Aes Sedai but not knowing that it's like what is this dude's deal like i i am always also very sympathetic to my rain and i really like my rain i liked my rain from the jump when i was first reading and that has never changed um so anybody who is suspicious of my rain reads as suspicious to me but i think as a reader if you read my rain as suspicious then tom comes across as the good guy and i i love that there's like this weird dynamic ambiguity yeah ambiguity thank you That's yeah the two of them Yes. I don't know. I mean, I would. I don't think I would ever read Tom. Not that I don't think that Maureen is suspicious. I mean, because she definitely, like, she kind of is in the, at the beginning of the book. But Tom is such an asshole that I don't think I would ever read him as a good guy. He's like, I mean, um, in, in the beginning specifically, like he's just, he's kind of a jerk. Like he's a, he's rude about people not getting up in the middle of the night to stable his horse. He's rude about Nynaeve being the wisdom at her young age. Uh, he's, he's just kind of, yeah, he's, he's kind of an asshole. Very true. For anybody who doesn't recall um, the chapter icons, there's a different icon uh, for every chapter. The icons are repeated throughout all of the books, right? And you come to realize, oh, this chapter, this chapter icon means this. This cha- chapter icon means that. And there's even, if you look at the chapter icon, it gives you a little bit of foreshadowing to what's going to happen in that chapter. Um, this is not what one of those cases where it gives an indication of what's going to happen in the chapter, but it is foreshadowing that I never would have picked up on my first reread when you get to chapter three and the chapter is called the peddler and it's all about Pat and Fane and it introduces Pat and Fane as a character in this story if you look at the chapter icon it is a dragon's fang and if you recall from your first reread the dragon's fang is something that was drawn on doors um, carved into things to as a visual indication that the people who live there or that person was a dark friend. I don't think I've ever paid attention to the chapter uh, icons and I'm going to have to change that because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, again, I didn't catch it on the first reread on the first read through. Cause you don't know what the hell they mean yet. So but this, so this is really, it was just another one of those really cool details that, uh, and a really good example of something I was really excited to pick up on um, in the reread. So that might be a spoiler. That's, Sorry. That's not a spoiler. We know Pat <laughs> is, is a dark friend by that's right. like the end of season one. Um, that's true. We are, 
we are definitely going to like we said we're going to try to keep the spoilers light but i think especially if it's covered in the first season of the tv show like i i do feel like we should feel a little bit free to spoil it for you guys um we'll try to keep like small or like big plot details that have not been covered in the show yet not spoiled but like if it's in the show i'm I'm gonna talk about it (laughs) (laughs) let's do it so chapter five is all about narg the trolloc and that's it that's all it is. It's just about Narg. Best boy. <laughs> <laughs> the goodest boy. <laughs> so, um, all the all these cre- these creatures that nobody uh, that nobody in the Two Rivers actually believes in, they actually show up. Uh, so the Trollocs bust in. Rand runs outside. Tam ends up outside. So then Rand runs back into the house, and when he goes back to the house, he has Tam's blade with him to protect himself. And when he goes back in, he's trying to get supplies so that he and Tam can get to Nynaeve, um, so Tam can be healed. Um, and that's that's when our, our best boy, Narg, um, stands up and talks. Is Is that still weird? For you guys, is, is that just me, or is that still a weird thing? It's weird because when it I read never book, happens again. Oh, <laughs> never, never again. When I read when I read the book when I read the book the first time, I didn't realize it was weird, and now now I know it's weird. The 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 collective wheel of time fandom has made it weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing with calling Narg the the goodest boy. Um, our our <laughs> love of Narg is uh, strange. And maybe that was the reason why no Trolloc ever talked ever again. Because it just didn't... Something you said earlier, Diana, about um, how Ravens doesn't really fit in with the rest of the book and that the rest of the book is written in such a mature manner compared to how Ravens was written. Ravens being written specifically for a YA, a YA audience um, that may have been one of the reasons um, why Nar, why no Trolloc was ever given dialogue ever again because rereading it this time um, I loved it and I was super excited about it because uh, it's Narg but it was also kind of kind of along those same lines it doesn't really feel like it fits like it didn't, um, it gave Narg almost a, like you really couldn't take him seriously. And so I don't know if it was the fandom and the love of Narg or the dialogue um, that really didn't inspire the terror that this read around. Yeah, it feels like Robert Jordan is like, shoot, I need to have a thing, uh, an evil thing. Tell Rand kind of what's going on. Um, because like Rand, one of the, so these books are written in third person limited and which is, that's personally my favorite, uh, um, narration style, probably influenced by wheel of time and how young I read it originally. Um, but one of the things that's very limiting about third person limited is that the, as a, a narrator can only narrate so much because that they get stuck at a certain point with what the characters know and don't know. Um, and so like to have you, you then need Rand to kind of know 
that the Mydral is after him and that the Trollocs are after him in particular, that this isn't a random attack um, in order for him to talk to Moiraine and other people about it later. Um, and so it felt like Robert Jordan was like, well, I can't have a Mydral talk to him because if a Mydral talks to Rand, then how in the world is Rand not immediately dead? So we'll have this Trolloc talk to him and then he never again needed a Trolloc to do any sort of exposition whatsoever. So do you think that uh, Narg is the only talking Trolloc? So if you, um, the way that the Trollocs are described, so like some of them have hooves and some of them are wearing boots. Um, some of them have more human looking faces and some of them have more animalistic looking faces. So I think, and this is this is just in my head canon, some of them can speak about as good of English as Narg can, and some of them can't at all. And I think it's a byproduct of how they were created, similar to that diversity you see in how what they look like. That's my theory. Yeah. I'm trying to remember how Trollocs are created, uh, which means that I'm rapidly Googling Trolloc, because I think I get their creation and Mydral's creation backwards in my head. But let me just say, I'm going to try not to spoil it and also try not to make this podcast have a trigger warning. The way that Trollocs are created is not great, and it involves human beings. And so I think that's also part of the reason for the diversity in Trolloc uh, features. Um, and also probably, Appearance. thank you, yes. Uh, also probably contributes to a difference in their level of intelligence. And so at the end of chapter five, uh, Rand has killed Narg. We're back with Tam. And Rand is preparing to physically haul him himself to ed to Edmondsfield to see Nynaeve. And that's where we leave off. All right. So as a part of a podcast, as we're going through and doing our reread, uh, each episode we are going to nominate, elect, nominate a winner a winner of this part of the reread and a loser of this part of the reread. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to nominate Diana to go first and share her winner and her loser. Okay. It was hard to pick a winner this chapter just because not a lot happened. Um, this might be my bias showing early and probably often. Um, but I'm going to say that Moiraine was the winner of these chapters. Um, she came in. She found the boys she was looking for. She successfully hid her identity despite not trying at all. Um, and, you know, and she uh, sussed out that some ravens were acting weird. So Moiraine is my winner. Um, my loser, despite the fact that I do like him more on this reread, is Rand. <laughs> um, because he just, uh, he kind of bumbles through these first couple of chapters. I mean, as you know, he's a, he's a sheep herder, he's a farm boy, but he gets stalked by a Mydral without really realizing it and almost tricks over, trips over a rock in that part. Um, he finds out that Egwene can braid her hair now and is terrified by that, but then also finds out that she might be a wisdom's apprentice, so he's not going to be married to 
to her and then also finds out that she's going to be moving away and that freaks him out and like and then his farm is attacked at the end and like yeah he kills narg so like points in his favor for not being the loser but like everything's going bad for rand these four these first five chapters when you summarize it like that damn (laughs) (laughs) it's rough these are rough first five chapters for a person who is going to have a rough 14 books (laughs) it's not a good start all right fair enough (laughs) all right Danya, who's your winner and loser uh, my winner is Egwene because she gets to be the very best water carrier. Uh, she gets to help out uh, a year early um, and stop carrying water uh, a year early. Uh, so she she wins. Uh, my loser is Narg because Narg dies. He doesn't last past chapter five. R.I.P. Narg. <laughs> R.I.P. Narg. It's fair to be like, this person died in these chapters, thus they lose. Like, that is a very fair vote. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure he's the only named character who dies. Well, that's not true, because we've, we get Ileana who dies uh, yeah. in the prologue. But, so. but like, in the current age, I think Narg is the only one who has died so far who has been named. So, my, my winner and my loser uh, are both Tam. He is a loser because uh, he gets he gets stabbed, <laughs> and that sucks. <laughs> so he doesn't die like Narg, but he gets stabbed, and that's sad. Especially at this point in the story, there's so much mystery that is surrounding Tam. Um, it gets introduced in Ravens. It get, keeps getting hinted at repeatedly throughout chapters one through five. There are many things, many negative things that I will say about a book series that I absolutely adore. But one of the things that that truly, I really, really don't like is that we don't get more Tam throughout the book series. So these are these are the chapters that I cherish. I I absolutely love the uh, worldliness and wisdom and history that that Tam has that makes him very unique um and the pivotal role that he plays in this entire storyline in rand's entire storyline and so i i just these are really really important chapters for me because we do get such a high concentration of of tam in them and i love him i agree (laughs) tam was my runner-up for for winner um i i just completely agree like he's so solid and there and comforting and a voice of reason in a lot of chaos in these first five chapters and in ravens um yeah i I totally it was it was a close battle i'm so excited we're doing this like i think it's coming home and also like I'm so excited to be able to talk about this book series with someone, with two people who I adore <laughs> talking about things with while I'm reading it. Like, like I keep mentioning, I was an English major. Talking about books in depth is like my favorite thing to do. And this is, I'm so excited that we get to do it for <laughs> our favorite series. My favorite yes. series. I suppose I shouldn't assume for the both of you, but my favorite series. <laughs> I mean, I love We Love Time. I'm not sure if I would call it my favorite series, but your favorite series, Fenya. I have to say it for you. (laughs) 
it's it is it's definitely up there otherwise i probably wouldn't be on a podcast about it thank you so much for joining us on the koreathon recycle a tarval and talks podcast if you have any questions or topics you'd like to talk to us about, feel free to send us an email to producer.tvt at gmail.com, or you can join us on the tarvalin.net website. In our general forums, we have a special thread called Tarvalin Talks pinned at the top of the page. You can also chat with us via tarvalin.net's Discord server in the Tarvalin Talks Discord channel. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we will be discussing the Eye of the World, chapters 6 through 10. See you soon.